0: I'd like to ask a question that I asked last week. What is a revival? What is a revival? Many people believe it's a time when we gather together for a group of meetings that we just gather together and we invite as many people as we can and people come forward either to rededicate their life or to join the church or for salvation. But that's not really what revival is. I'm going to quote again what the definition of revival is. Revival is that strange and sovereign work of God in which he visits his own people, restoring, reanimating, and releasing them into the fullness of his blessing. When a Navy ship encounters some, of the, uh, some form of enemy, enemy advance, the captain will hail that oncoming ship to change course. If the ship in question does not heed the warning of the captain's message, then the captain will then have the Navy ship uh, fire a warning shot across the bow of the enemy ship. Now, the reason for this is to warn the oncoming ship to pay attention and to cease and desist from their current activities and or else you'll pay the price for their noncompliance. If they don't comply, the enemy ship will pay the consequences. I want to ask you a question. Do you remember... What your reaction was when you first heard or saw on TV of the attack on the United States in September 11, 2001? Was it fear, anger, uncertainty? If you remember, there was a great influx into our churches after that attack. All around the country. Not just in parts of the country, but all around the country. Because people were searching for answers. And I submit to you today that for the most part, I believe the church failed after September 11. Barna did a research and found that churches were not ready to deal with a, uh, with turning a short-term crisis into a long-term ministry. You remember there was an influx into the church and then a short time later, where were they? Gone. They were gone. Few congregations led people to a serious and prolonged period of self-reflection and personal change. As we look at the book of Habakkuk, there will be some of the same emotions you would have experienced if you were suddenly awakened by the emergency broadcast system on your electronic device, the same way when you get like a Uh, An amber alert or a weather alert, you know, that, 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 that goes off. Well, it would be the same way saying that maybe we're under attack from North Korea. We're under attack from Iran or Russia or China, you name it. The emotions that you would feel at that time are the same type of emotions that Habakkuk was feeling in the time in which he lived. Habakkuk appeared on the scene kind of unannounced. We don't know from what family or what tribe he came from. We do gather from the content of his message that he came later than Ezra and Nehemiah and later than the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, which were between 530 and 430 B.C. His name is obscure. Some scholars say it denotes ardent embracing or literally wrestling. And it's definitely true that he wrestled with God as you read his pas- the passages in the book of Habakkuk. Time after time, he is interceding in prayer and stretching out in faith as he seeks to bring down revival from an open heaven. We don't know, how much, we don't know much about the time of this ministry, except that he stood between two great judgments of God, between two dates of destruction, between Israel and Judah. Israel was destroyed in 722 B.C. Listen to what the writer of 2 Kings says. But they would not listen, but they were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made their fathers and their warnings that he gave them. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. God was angry with Israel, and because of that anger and because they would not turn back to him, he sent them to captivity. Judah was later destroyed years later, 587 BC. Israel had already fallen, and Judah's fall had been predicted. That's why Habakkuk said in chapter 3, verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear The first thing I want us to see today, three three points today, God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty. If you'll turn to the book of Isaiah with me, keep your finger in Habakkuk, turn with me to the book of Isaiah chapter 45. I want to point out two scriptures in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 45 verses 5 through 7, the first of the prophet's. Isaiah chapter 45 verses 5 through 7 Follow along as I read. I am the Lord and there is no other there is no God I equip you though you do not know me that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me I am the Lord and there is no other I form light And create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity or evil. Some translations use the word evil. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, the word used for evil here is not evil and sin, but it literally means calamity or disaster. And that's what we see God doing in the book of Habakkuk. Look over one more chapter in the book of Isaiah, chapter 46. Chapter 46 verses 8 through 11 Isaiah 46 verses 8 through 11 Remember this and stand firm recall it to mind you transgressors remember the former things of old for I am God and there is no other I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying my counsel my counsel shall stand And I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. These are two great scriptures to explain to us and picture God's sovereignty. Now, as we look back at the book of Habakkuk, I'm here to tell you today that our captain, the captain of the Lord's host, as well as the command, our commander-in-chief, God himself has been sending shots across the bow, as it were, for the church, as well as of America and the world. Time has come for us to pay attention to what God is doing. It's time for us to cease and desist from going the way that we're going and turn to the way God has given for us to follow. In the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1 Verses 6 through 12. We see the judgment from God on Judah. Notice the words in the first part of verse 6 of Habakkuk 1. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. I am raising up the Chaldeans. These words brought fear into the heart of Habakkuk. God is using this, the most vile, evil and intimidating group of people known in the world at that time. We have a description of their horsemen and horses of the Chaldeans. Let me ask you a question. Think back in our history just a few years ago. How bad was Nazi Germany and Hitler when he was on the scene? Millions and millions of people died because of his people his leadership, his his right, Third Reich. Think back a little farther back in history, Nero, who literally took Christians, fed them to lions, and literally burned them as human torches outside of Rome. The fear that struck into the heart of people. Think about it today if we were to, as I said earlier, to wake up to an alarm saying, we have been attacked by Iran. They have acquired nuclear capability. We have been attacked by North Korea. They have acquired full nuclear capability. We have been attacked by China or by Russia. That's what Habakkuk was feeling. The first thing in I want to think is God's description in verses 5 through 11. I won't take time to read it, but when God tells Habakkuk to observe and be astonished and to wonder, observe, be astonished, and wonder, there must be something awesome about what God is going to reveal. The fierceness and intimidation of the opponent often depends on the power they possess within themselves. If they're stronger and mightier and more well equipped for battle, their very presence may cause flight. Just the very presence of them. This was the case with the Chaldeans, whom God has strengthened to be the agent of justice against a wicked group of people in Israel, Judah. Remember back in earlier parts history of, well, there was a time when they were outnumbered. They were outgunned. They were outmanned. But God said, I'm going to give you the victory. They didn't have enough men. They didn't have enough armament. But what did God do? He did something miraculous for them. God gave them the victory, even though there was just a few. God says, I can't use 300. I can't use a thousand. He said, Gideon, I'm going to use just a very few people to defeat thousands. And they did. If an army had horses and horsemen that were well equipped and well trained to them with a distinct advantage. Look at verses 6 through 8 in chapter 1. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth. To seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. It says they are a bitter and hasty people. The New American Standard puts it this way they are fierce and impetuous. It means that they are speedy and cruel people without mercy. They, they have no mercy. It says they march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs, going forth without fear, conquering and taking, and to keep the possessions as their sole Lord and proprietor. In verse 8, it says he spreads from afar a few horsemen, but so many that they'll be able to spread themselves as to cover a wider range of territory. Defeat of the enemy was swift and sure. It says they will fly like an eagle ready to eat. Hunger is a mighty, powerful motivator. If a hungry eagle is on the hunt and he's hungry, he will not be stopped by anything to get prey. Sometimes they take prey that's bigger as bigger or bigger than they are. It's interesting, not long ago I was watching National Geographic and I saw a group of nomadic people over in the Far East somewhere, around Mongolia or somewhere like that, that they used eagles, golden eagles. They had trained golden eagles to watch over their flocks of sheep and goats. When a wolf would try to attack, they would release these eagles. And these eagles would literally fall down, swoop down on these wolves. And you know, a wolf is not a small animal, 100, 150 pounds. These eagles would swoop down on these wolves and literally bring them down and kill them and then devour their flesh. They were doing two things. They were feeding their own selves, but they were also protecting that which belonged to their masters. That's kind of a picture we have here of the people the Chaldeans. But secondly, we see the description of the horses. He says that they're swifter than leopards. The average leopard can run 35 or around 35 miles an hour. And God says the horses are faster. The leopard next to the lion is one of the most powerful of the big cat family. It's one of the only big cats that will take their kill And climb up a tree carrying that prey with it, that kill with it. Lions can't do it. Cheetahs can't do it. Leopards are the only ones. That's the picture. He says they're more more fierce than evening wolves. Wolves, when they strike, strike with a mighty force in the middle of the night. They're ravenous and don't care how much destruction they cause. So we see the, the people, God's description of the people and the horses. The second thing I want us to see is God's working. In chapter 3, verse 2, we have these words, O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. We see that a sovereign God will use even evil people to accomplish His will, whatever that is here on earth. Now, let's see how He works. The sovereignty of God in a revival is always demonstrated by the way He works. God is constantly working. During his earthly ministry, Jesus said in John 5, he said, My Father is working still, and I am working. This is the very nature of God's activity to continue working until the talk, task is completed. One of the sinfulness, only the sinfulness of man hinders the progress of divine purpose. In Matthew 13, we find these words. He could not do many miracles in their midst because of their lack of faith. But in spite of the many, anything that man can say or do, God will finish his work one way or another. Philippians 1.6 I am sure that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. When God works in reviving power... He does so suddenly. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. Chapter 3, verse 3. God comes from Teman. And the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covers the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. We see a picture of this very type of thing in Acts chapter 2. When we see the Holy Spirit came suddenly at Pentecost. Suddenly, it says, suddenly, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. God sent the Holy Spirit, and we see evidence of great revival in Acts chapter 2. That when when the Spirit came, they were full of divine energy. It says many signs and wonders were done by the apostles. Sometimes our church experience is one where we end up working together together. But in the opposite fashion, it it reminds me of a story I heard about two men riding on a tandem bicycle. You know, it's one of those bicycles where somebody sits in front, somebody sits in back and they pedal together. They were going up a very steep hill and after a lot of effort, they finally reached the top of the hill and the rider in the front said, that was a tough ride to which the rider in the rear said, sure was. And if I hadn't kept the brake on, we might have slipped backwards down the hill. Well, think about it. They were working together, but they were working in an opposite fashion. Both of them thought they were doing the right thing. There was divine energy. There was also divine unity, says, all who believed were together. Unity is one trait that pleases God more than any other. Nothing will please God more than Riverside Baptist Church being unity. As we go forth, taking care of What God has blessed us with, the area where God has placed us in, 5500 Main Street, when it is populated, we must be faithful in what God has blessed us with there, winning people to Jesus, and after they're won to Jesus, we disciple them and make sure they grow. Divine unity. There's also divine charity. They had all things in common, and they sold their possessions They sold their possessions and goods and distributed them to all as any as had need. There was a divine consistency. It said day by day they attended temple together. There's no problem here with church attendance when God brings true revival to our hearts. Listen, when God brings revival, the church house will begin to be full. But it starts with just a few. It starts with just a few. The next thing we see is divine radiancy. Listen to this. Day by day, breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. That word glad used here describes exuberant joy. Joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit, and that pleases God. That If we have that joy in our heart, that true joy. We also see divine purity for, it said day by day in Acts 2, they eat their food with singleness of heart. This is the only place in the New Testament that this word singleness is used. It means free from rock, stones, or grit. It suggests the thought of purity from anything that creates friction in one's personal or spiritual life. It's a transparency with each other. That brings glory to God. And lastly, in Acts 2, we see they had divine liberty. It said day by day, praising God and having favor with all the people. And as the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. This shows God's people being uninhibited in their witness. When God begins revival, we will not have a problem with going and sharing the gospel with people around us. Whoever we come in contact with. As a result of the outpouring of the Spirit in Acts 2, we have the birth of the church. And her witness passed from one city to another. Until the faith of the church was spoken throughout the whole world. So, the Spirit of God comes suddenly. But secondly, in Habakkuk 3, 4 and 5, it comes searchingly. Look at verses 4 and 5. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand. And there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed close behind. When the Spirit came at Pentecost, He appeared as tongues of fire on each one of them in the upper room. Fire symbolized God's searching ministry. The preaching afterwards was powerful and convicting. Revival can never come without exposure and judgment of sin. It's searching. But in verses 6 through 12, we see that He came solemnly. I won't take time to read all of that. But here Habakkuk uses allusions to the Exodus when the Nile was turned into blood, when the sun stood still on the day that Joshua's army won the battle at Gibeon, the parting of the Red Sea in the escape from Egypt. He recalls how God marched through the land in indignation and trampled the heathen in anger. As God's people marched toward the promised land, any peoples, any resistance they came upon, God gave them the victory. And even after they took the promised land, God gave them the victory time and time again. Habakkuk has already pointed out about God, your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor in chapter 1 verse 13. The prophet is only saying again that we cannot expect revival if we are not prepared to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And accept his judgment to humble ourselves. And accept his judgment on every appearance of sin. Habakkuk's faith was strong. He believed God would bring future revival just as much as he believed that God was brought past deliverance. Not only was it sudden and not only savingly, but it was also it was suddenly, but now it's savingly. Look at verse 13 of chapter 3. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. What a picture in colorful and challenging language. The prophet describes the mighty saving activity which follows in the wake of revival. God's purpose is always redemptive in its outworking. Now let me say this. Evangelism is not Revival. But evangelism will always, always, always follow revival. Always. So we see God working. But now, let's look at God's timing. He said, O oh Lord, in the midst of the years, revive your work. In the midst of the years, make it known most commentators find the phrase, in the midst of the years, very difficult to interpret. But whatever it means, one thing is clear. We see, one, the planning of God's exact moment. For He says, in the midst of the years, make it known. When Jesus was about to leave the earth and ascend into heaven, the disciples wanted to know exactly when He, would again, would restore the kingdom. And Jesus replied this way It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put into His own power. Listen, we may not know when, but we do know for certain that God always works on time. Jesus came when the fullness of time was come, the Holy Spirit came and the day of Pentecost had fully come. Jesus Himself says that He does not Himself even know when. He is coming again. Only the Father has reserved that for Himself. And there's coming a day when the Father is going to look and say, Now is the time. He's going to look to the Son and say, Now is time. Go. 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 Establish your kingdom. What a relief to know that God has planned exactly when to send revival. May we be ready for that day of His power. We prepare for God's exact moment. But secondly, the purpose of God's express message. O Lord, I have heard your report of you, and I fear in the midst of the years, make it known in wrath, remember mercy. Think back some 500 years ago, during the time of revival we call the uh, Reformation. The message that rang out clearly And loudly was the central word of Habakkuk found in chapter 2, verse 4. The just shall live by faith. After these words, the just shall live by faith, sunk into the heart of Martin Luther. And it really got a hold of him. He got off off of his knees. He went and he nailed the 95 theses on the doors at Wittenberg. And then the Reformation was on. During the 17th century, when the revival of Puritanism came, we see the message of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man revived. The 18th century saw the first evangelical awakening with the restatement of the simple gospel message of Jesus. John Wesley and George Whitefield traveled all over the British Isles calling on men and women to repent and to be reconciled to God. Most of the well-established evangelical societies we know today were born out of the Great Awakening in the 19th century. When we see revival take place, we see the ministry of God's Word greatly empowered by the Spirit. One person said this of the preaching when revival comes. Preaching in revival times is not always graceful or polished, not even eloquent at times, but it is always powerful. Always powerful. By the word powerful, the preaching is not, it not only changes lives, but the sermons are felt and are real to the congregation as they hear it. That's what Paul taught in 1 Thessalonians 1.5. He said this, Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. When revival comes, the power of the Holy Spirit comes down on the church, everyone will know. Everyone within the church will know, and everyone outside the church is going to know something special is happening there. The preaching will be great power, not something, that's not something the preacher can plan out. It's not something that a worship leader can plan. It just happens. You cannot plan revival. You can plan a group of meetings. You can plan that. But that's not revival, true revival. God sends it in His time. Is His way. It's said in the days that Jonathan Edwards was preaching during the Great Awakening that one of the most famous sermons he preached centers in the hands of an angry God. He stood before the congregation that day and as they preached, he took the he had the manuscript before him, held it in front of his face, and read it word for word. Wasn't very eloquent. Wasn't graceful or polished, but oh, the power of God that fell in that place that day. The power of God that fell that day. Why? because he had spent hours and time in prayer, and God brought revival through the preaching of His Word. We see a sovereign God working in His time, bringing His express message. But the second point I want us to think is man's boundary. O Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. We see here a man with a burden on his heart, a sob in his voice, and tears in his eyes. He has reached his boundary, but now must depend on God, which leads us first to a point of desperation. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, it opens up, the prophecy opens this way, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. The word oracle can be translated burden. After this burden, we see the vision of a desperate condition of God's people. Sin as high as the mountains, the law of God being disregarded, and wicked surrounding the righteous. As we saw at the beginning of our message, God replies to Habakkuk by showing the prophet what God is about to do. I am raising up the Chaldeans To bring judgment on my people who are turning their back on me. God's people were so backslidden and and wicked that he had to raise up a nation worse than themselves to whip them into submission and repentance. For he says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. I ask a question, is God doing similar work today with Iran maybe? With China, with Russia, North Korea, who knows? We need to pay attention to what God is doing around the world. Not only with countries, but using his creation. South Carolina, South Southern California, great earthquakes, a lot of destruction. Flooding now taking place. It was bad enough in the middle in the Midwest, but now down around Louisiana, Mississippi. It's not just by happenstance that that's happening. God's hand is in control. God's sovereignty is at work. One preacher said it this way. It's my conviction that we will never have revival until God has brought the church of Jesus Christ to a point of desperation. As long as Christian people can trust religious organizations, material wealth, popular preaching, shallow evangelism, and promotional drives, there will never be revival. What are you trusting in today? What are we trusting in as a church for God to bring revival? Programs? It won't work. God will never be able to break in until the church realizes her desperate wretchedness, blindness, and nakedness before God. It's only then that God will break through It's like in Revelation chapter 3, where God spoke to the church at Laodicea. He says, you don't even know that you're poor and blind and naked and in need. Man's boundary is that coming to the point of desperation. But secondly, we also have to come to the point of intercession. for the prophet says, In chapter 2, verse 1, I will stand upon my watch and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. As we pointed out last week, there's no such thing as a prayer-less revival. Revival will always be accompanied by prayer. I read the story of a remote town called Pond Inlet in Baffin Island, some 400 miles above the Arctic Circle, it's the only accessible. It's only accessible by plane, and is thousands of miles away from any population center. In February 1999, God visited this mainly Inuit community, where Joshua Arik was leading worship. At the conclusion of several days of Bible teaching, he said the people were praying together, and he said this. And suddenly, without our expecting anything supernatural, there was a visitation. Those who witnessed the dramatic change brought about by the revival said that it wouldn't have taken place without prayer. What happened at Pond Inlet was preceded not by one day, two days, a week, two weeks, three weeks, but by a year, a whole year of fervent, regular prayer. The day of Pentecost, when God sent the Holy Spirit in revival and began His church, they had spent 10 days together in fervent, ardent prayer in the upper room, and then God sent the Holy Spirit. The ultimate reason for an unrevived church is prayerlessness. Yes, there are a few individuals praying for revival and God is graciously meeting them in personal blessing. But where are the churches that are uniting in agonizing cry that God would open up the windows of heaven and come down and cause the mountains of belief and sin and hindrance to melt away before His presence? Where are the churches? Where are the people in Riverside gathering together to pray for revival? Only one thing will save us in this hour of desperation that's the hours of prayer and intercession. When Habakkuk prayed with this urgency, God gave him a twofold vision. Chapter 3, chapter 2, verses 3 through 19. He gave him a vision of the sinfulness of man. Chapter 2 starting at verse 6, he brings forth five woes. The first woe is the woe against aggression. Look at verse 6 of chapter 2. Shall not these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up and is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges? Were not your debtors suddenly rise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe against aggression. Then starting in verse 9, we have the woe against covetousness. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from your woodwork respond. The woe of covetousness. Thirdly, starting in verse 12 through 14, the woe against violence. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The fourth woe, woe against humanity, verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their wickedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup is in the Lord's right hand around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth to cities and all who dwell in them and the last woe woe to idolatry what profit is in an idol when its maker has shaped it a metal image a teacher of lies For its maker trusts in its own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. Woe against aggression. Woe against covetousness. Woe against violence. Woe against inhumanity. And woe against idolatry. The vision of the sinfulness of man. But second, in verse 20, we have these words. But the Lord, but the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. We see the vision of the holiness of God. The Lord is in His holy temple. Another example of this we see in Isaiah chapter 6. Where Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of His road filled the temple. Isaiah's response was this, after he heard the the angels crying back and forth, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And here is Isaiah's response. Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We will never be serious enough in our praying for revival until we fully understand the human sinfulness compared to God's holiness. Here is man's boundary that brings him to the point of desperation and intercession because of man's sinfulness and God's holiness. So we've seen the sovereignty of God, God's sovereignty, And man's boundary. Lastly, we see faith's opportunity. O Lord, in the midst of the years, revive your work. Now look down at verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. Faith's opportunity. God's work is found in these these words, chapter 2, verse 4. The just shall live by faith. This faith that Habakkuk refers to as a faith that can only be possessed by God's people for it is the gift to them from God himself. For we are, by grace are we saved through what? Faith. It is not of works lest any man should boast. It's a gift of God. God's people has been decimated by one of the most ravenous and vile people that has ever lived. God's people paid the price of judgment for turning their back on God. And Habakkuk saw and visualized this in verse 17. But then in verses 18 and 19, Habakkuk shows the result of God's answer. The just shall live by faith, O Lord, in the midst of the years, revive your work. In verse 18, faith allows us to believe rejoicingly. He says, look at verse 18. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Literally says, I will jump for joy. I will spit around for joy in God. Habakkuk is literally saying, it doesn't matter what's come. Doesn't matter what, how bad things are. I'm going to rejoice in God and I'm going to dance before God just like David did. Faith allows us to believe because we're energized. He said, God, the Lord, is my strength. Faith allows us to believe because we're stabilized. He says, he makes my feet like deer's feet. Faith allows us to believe because we're vitalized. He makes me walk on high places with stability. A modern transla- modern paraphrase of these verses might be like this. Though the covered be bare, the bills coming due, my car repossessed, a pink slip in my hand, and no jobs in town. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Listen, this isn't a grit your teeth and hang on mentality. Nor is it ignoring of your situation reality. This is true, real, unadulterated joy in your God. The bottom line is not circumstances, but God. Verse 19. God, the Lord, is my strength. He is our source of confidence and strength. He is the only rock on which we can rely. When we experience this kind of hope, joy, and faith, it's supernatural, which means we cannot bring it up on ourselves we cannot begin revival of ours of, of ourselves and we cannot bring this kind of joy and hope and faith in of, of ourselves as we consider the expectation of revival we must believe that God is sovereign we must believe that man has a boundary in which believe that faith gives opportunity God never promises to sweep our problems under the rug Nor does He promise health and wealth to those who follow Him. But He does promise to be faithful as well as His presence will always be with us. We have the Holy Spirit who comforts us and enables us to look at the trials of life and still be joyful in our sovereign God. As Habakkuk was looking ahead to see a sovereign God working to bring revival to His people, the prophet questioned, How long, O Lord, will I call for help? How long, O oh Lord? O oh Lord, in the midst of the years, revive your work. The prophet knew that tragedy was coming, and it struck fear in his heart. Even though the prophet knew judgment was coming, there was a calm expectation that God was going to bring revival. Again, I quote those words, O oh Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. The book of Habakkuk ends not with more questions, but with revived worship, which is the hallmark of revival in God's people. As we prepare for, for a revival, as we saw last week, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, God says, and forgive their sin and heal their land. We must expect revival. Oh, Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. One person asked one time, How does revival start today? Very easy. You go into a room, you shut the door, sit in the middle of the room or stand in the middle of the room, you take a piece of chalk or something. And you draw a circle around yourself. And you pray to God, Lord, begin revival inside this circle. That is how revival begins today. Listen to the words of this song by Stephen Camp. We've turned from your ways, Lord. Your fruit we've ceased to bear. We lack the power we once knew in our prayers. That gentle voice from heaven we cease to hear and know. The fact that He has risen no longer stirs our souls. Though we've been unfaithful, we've never been disowned. The Spirit that raised Christ from the dead compels us to His throne. Revive us, O Lord. Revive us, O Lord. And cleanse us from our impurities. And make us holy. Hear our cry. Revive us, O oh Lord. Let's pray together. I pray that your spirit is now, even now, working in people's hearts. Convicting of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. I pray right now, Lord, that we are praying O oh Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. Woe is me, for I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is full of his glory. Father, reveal to us the wickedness of us, of our souls, but also reveal to us the holiness of our God. I pray right now, Lord, that you will bring revival to Riverside, and that, Lord, you'll begin within me. Oh, Lord. Revive your work in the midst of the years. Amen.